Everybody, welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and I'm so excited to be here with Brianne Ruse and Kanita Williams joining us twice uh, in less than a week, which is very exciting. So welcome, ladies. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's good to be here. And for folks who have been paying attention to the pod, if you remember early in January, I shared that we were going to do a couple of sort of book club episodes. We did Uh, my book uh, several weeks ago, and we are turning to Bell Hooks. She has become a favorite. She's a new author for me, but a favorite very quickly. And we're going to talk a little bit about teachings to transgress. And I can't wait to hear what Brianne and Kanita have to say and share about this book. Um, And if you haven't read it, you need to pick it up and read it right now. Like, do not hesitate. Go to Amazon or wherever you get your books and get it now. So for folks who don't know Bell Hooks, Um, She was born in 1952 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and she just recently actually passed away um, December 15th, and she was 69. Interesting. I don't know if you ladies knew this, but she took um, her pseudonym Hooks um, to honor her great grandmother's name. And for folks, again, who don't know this, she wrote her name in lowercase letters, which with spell correction automatically on word, it's almost impossible to get it to do a lowercase b when it wants a capital B, but that's a different story. Um, But she does this, she did this because she really felt it was important to have her audiences focusing on her message rather than her. And I thought that was, so she did to, you know, in everything she did, I feel like she decentered right herself and others in 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 the spaces and focus on the work she was an american scholar and activist she examined the connection between race gender and class and she really was an early researcher on all things around intersectionality um as i said she grew up in the segregated south and started writing a book age 19 and she wrote about 30 books um through her career. She started as a professor of English in 1976 and served in multiple locations as a professor of literature and other places. So um, really cool, cool career. Um, she, this book, Teaching to Transgress, is actually a series of essays, and, and we'll get into it in a moment. But essentially, if you read the book, you'll see that um, you know she really believed that education and learning was freedom. It was a way to cultivate and build freedom and, you know, keeping in mind that she was wholly focused on intersectionality, feminist theory, critical theory, race and gender. These essays really were about pedagogy and rethinking teaching and, and strategies to enhance learning. When we think about, you know, what are the implications if we if we honor these diversities and the talent that we find in our classrooms? What are the implications for how we need to show up as teachers? Um, and I'm going to say one more thing, and then I'm going to let my my guests jump in. She talked about teaching as a catalyst for everyone to be more engaged. And one thing she said is that what that means and what you'll see in her essays is that our voices have to change according to the audiences for which these things are written. So she wanted the reader to take note that even though she wrote all of these essays, she intentionally you know, invoked different voices, um, which I think I thought, you know, uh, Brianna and Kanita as educators ourselves, I thought that was a really great lesson because at least in the 
the doctoral program that we've been a part of, students worry so much about scholarly writing. Um, mm-hmm. And I really, it gives me chills because I really love that she, she brought that up. The other thing that I really loved is she was all about honoring this notion that teaching that enables transgressions is movement against and beyond boundaries. She talks a lot about interrogating and questioning and pushing. And so, so this whole book is really, I felt like um, examples, discussions, journeys around, I don't know, I don't, I don't know a better way to, to put it. And I would love to hear your interpretation. Really, to me, it was like, how do we show up in these spaces to do the kind of work that she's um, so committed to? So oh, I'm going to be quiet. So I would love to hear first impressions, um, your relationship with this book, how you came to, to know Bell Hooks, any, any place you ladies want to start. Sure. So I'm happy to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I was really excited about um, this book in particular. Um, So I'm newer to um, Bell Hooks, um, but not so much probably as new as a lot of people. I was able to um, talk, have engaged in a conversation with some friends around her book, um, Ain't I a Woman? Um, Mm -hmm. And so that was and, you know, that obviously is very personal to me um, as a Black woman, because she really examines really that intersection and, and effect of racism and sexism on, on Black women and, and really how pretty much since slavery, you know, there's been this um, this effect that has made Black women kind of the lowest class in this state. And so really being able to dive in and unpack um, that work for me as a person um, was powerful. And this was really kind of, um, that, um, synonym or what's it, what's it called? Like it was the parallel for my professional life. Like Mm. how am I showing up as a professional now that I've kind of examined me personally through bell hooks. And, um, Mm. it really just, um, really challenged me as as to understand who I am and what I do in this education space, really think about what I need to unlearn, mm-hmm. um, really shift um, my thought about work and education as a craft and, and more about education as activism, which I hope we will talk about a lot more later. Yeah. Um, but it, it really has just pressed me to really be thinking about Okay, you think you're doing what you're supposed to be doing (laughs) for education equity, but could you be doing more? Mm. Um, And so that's really what I what I left with at the end of this book. Could Mm. I be doing more? And yes, I should be doing more. (laughs) Kenita, where where were you professionally when you started asking these questions? I'm curious because you're you're a pretty significant leader in your organization now. I mean, you've received that promotion recently. So I'm curious where you were in the journey. So it's funny, I am um, like, I always knew kind of um, my why about this work in education equity mm-hmm. just based on my upbringing, but I don't, I didn't always know that it was about equity. I didn't always have a, a name for it, mm-hmm. um, but I really, I think, came into my understanding when I was um, a partnerships manager in Atlanta Public School. So about maybe about seven or so years ago. Mm-hmm. And it actually was very funny um, to, well, not funny, haha, but ironic to not get it until I had my own daughter and to see what she was getting in terms of her mm-hmm. public education, where, mm-hmm. you know, kids are dropped off of school in a golf cart and then leave and drive 30 minutes where I'm raising money to buy kids socks 
mm. in coats. Um, and so that is where I really started to answer these questions and really be thinking about more than um, equality and, and how you need to give more to those that need more and, and what it means to think about racial equity versus what it means to be socially just and how that is mm. just a step more um, and why that's an important and nuanced framing of the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when I really started to understand it um, and began to kind of question like, okay, so what are you doing um, mm. around then? Yeah, interesting. Brianna, thought? Yeah. Um, gosh, I love this. Okay. So I mean, I'm super new to Bill Hooks. She was part of my 2020 summer of reading and learning and that, that ironic time of staying in and like branching out. So staying in my house, (laughs) um, and really just learning all these things that I certainly should have learned a very long time ago. So she was part of that for me. And as I was preparing for this, I was like, Oh my gosh, I could tell you, you know, what was on my mind as I was reading her work. So it's kind of a a neat connection for me that I think anytime I open this book, I will always go back to just the height of, of COVID. Mm. But I guess in my branching out and in learning about her, her education, I mean, that blew my mind from the introduction all the way through the book. I was just like, this is incredible reading that we all have to do. I kept thinking about what can I be doing differently with the students in front of me in my classrooms? Um, And I still ask that question and I ask it all the time. And she, what I love about her book is that it's, it's theoretical and it's practical at the same time. And it's, Mm. it's a lot of like, you know, these are the ideas and then also do it this way, or these were the things that worked the best for me. And I so appreciate that because I really do think about that when I'm trying to connect with students. And I work at a predominantly white institution and we are actively bringing in a more diverse student body, which is awesome. And I don't know how well we're supporting everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that really rubs me the wrong way. And I want to be part of the the crew that's doing the right work. And I don't necessarily know if I'm doing it right, but I just, I channel this and I try to just sort of have this in mind. So she's just been, I think, an incredible influence. And I am so happy that I was introduced to her. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's, I mean, there's so many ways that we could go with this, right? I mean, when I first read this book, um, I mean, I was delighted to find her as well. So I, I, I share that. I think the thing that was, um, I don't know, the realization perhaps seeing it in her, in her book was she's been talking about these issues for a long time. She was a professor in the 1970s. So before that, she wrote her first book at 19. And so it really makes me wonder, and and we've had conversations like this on the pod, like what, like Kanita, to your point, like I need to be doing more clearly because we're still talking about creating spaces for teachers to explore these things, um, self-actualization and the values that we need to commit and bringing these different voices. And I, and I just, and I want this to be a, I, I don't want to go all gloom and doom, but like, I, I do wonder. And when I read this again, when I was prepping today, like what more, like how much more evidence do we need to realize this is, this is something we need to address? Like legitimately everywhere. We should be asking hard questions of every system, of every policy, of every classroom. Um, yeah, that, that, those are the things that have been coming up to me. Like, how can we continue to ignore this? 
or not, or maybe we're not ignoring it. Maybe we're just, we're not effectively addressing it. I feel like, Um, I don't know. I don't know. I see you're shaking your head, Kanita. Yeah. You know, it's so the, her chat, I think she gives us the answer in, in, in the chapter about uh, a revolution of values. Mm -hmm. Like she says, quite literally, we're addicted to lying and denial. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are telling ourselves that we are making progress, that everyone can Mm. Um, achieve the American dream, that there's no longer social and economic apartheid, as she says. Um, and it's just not true. And, yeah. and she also says, she said something that was so powerful to me and it, and it just resonated with me the whole time. She was just like, acts of resistance is not the same as challenging the status quo. Mm. And so we are not really, really, or are we really, really challenging the status quo and what she says about... Um, changing our everyday lives. Like we can go and say, you know, it's racist that this school is doing that, but what does that mean for me as an everyday person? And I mm-hmm. think that all gets to like why we are still having these conversations because mm-hmm. are we truly and authentically committed to the change that needs to happen mm-hmm. um, for us to see this? And I'm just not sure that we are as we talk about doom and gloom, but you know. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, and we have to point out where we are in this journey in order to make progress. Right. We can't we don't want to be addicted to lies and denial. So we we have to sort of call it out when we see it. So I I, let's not call it gloom and doom. Let's just sort of maybe it's a reality check. Right. Um, Yeah. Can we talk about progress for a second? So I have to go back to the introduction of this book, because when she described her experience in the segregated schools as sheer joy and a place where she was recognized and belonged and connected. And the teachers saw her as somebody with tremendous potential, Mm. right? I mean, just all good. And then was moved to the integrated school, a move of progress, maybe right in air quotes. Mm -hmm. Um, It was awful. Mm -hmm. And so what is like, what is the progress? Who's measuring the progress? Whose bar is this? Because I mean, when she talks about her formative education being in the segregated schools, when she was so young, I was blown away and I shouldn't have been because as I, I, I had those feelings of like, of course, that was her experience. How could that not have been her experience? But I never thought about her experience in that way. Um, and I, I loved the parallels between her early education and then how then she became what was probably just the most m- magnificent instructor, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, by channeling what those what those teachers did with her, mm-hmm. you know, so many years ago by seeing her and understanding her context and understanding where she lived and worked and worshipped in her house and her, her family and how all of that contributed to this little girl who had all these ideas, right? Yeah. It's just, it's so powerful. I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. And an incredible way for her to start. Were you going to jump in, Carrie? No, go ahead. Go for it. Well, I, I was going to say, Brian, that is um, such a, a, a powerful thought for us to kind of consider and unpack. Um, and that, you know, we, to understand progress is, is really, it goes hand in hand with our definition of what success looks mm-hmm. like. And, um, you know, I've thought of education 
and still do um, think about it in terms of access and opportunity and are we using it as the great equalizer and are people being propelled to their opportunity rich lives that they deserve um and and after reading this I'm like wow but like even if I have a good job, do I have freedom? Uh, do I have the opportunity to bring my mind, body, and spirit, my whole self um, to where I am and who I am and, you know, to these places? And, and I think we, if we think about success in terms of like, yeah, people can get a good job, then we are making progress. But is if we think about um, success in terms of like, we value people um, and students for who they are when they enter buildings, we give them opportunities to learn based on their cultural and linguistic assets that they bring. Then I don't know, we're making so much progress. Like I think we have to decide what we consider success to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to sit, I have to pause for a moment and think on that, Kanita. That's super powerful. I mean, for me, when listening to you talk, I sort of go back to conversations we've had around the meaning of words and constructs. And so then the next question is, well, whose definition are we privileging, right? Who's mm-hmm. sitting at that table to make mm-hmm. that definition, which then has a complete trickle down effect in terms of cultural forces and the way schools are, are shaped. And so it makes me think, and I can't remember Brianna, if it was you or someone else that was uh, sent me a quote that was about um, you know, women shouldn't have to compete over seats at the table. And this could be any, it doesn't have to, it could be, you know, black, black or brown people, gay, straight women, whatever, but we shouldn't have to compete for one or two seats. We should just like destroy that table and build a new one. Right. So like, <laughs> did you send me that Brianne? Was that your, yeah, that was on, well, I might've sent it to you. It was from one of the Brene Brown podcasts and I can't remember the guest who said it. Yeah. Um, I don't remember if it was Glennon. It was somebody, I don't remember. That's yeah. where I heard it. Yeah. So, so, but just that notion of like, and I think this is where, you know, my deep interest in leadership, right. Is I really believe as much as I know teachers are crucially important. And the literature tells us, you know, in the classroom, I also think leaders play a huge role in sort of thinking about, you know, what definitions of success we're privileging and sort of what, what inclusivity could um, could look like. So um, I think for me, Kanita, it brings me back to, because I think it's related, you brought up the the, the discussion of activism, education as activism. Um, and we live in a small town in Massachusetts and Massachusetts is very blue. And yet there are pockets, even in our small town, where the, the so-called liberals are accused of being activists, mm-hmm. right? So when we when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion work, and when we talk about reading lists and opening minds, they accuse us immediately. And I say they, I mean, sort of the conservative. And I'll say, I mean, there are some Trump supporters who say, you know, you get accused of activism. So it's almost like they've weaponized that word activism. So I'm wondering, um, I'm just curious, Kenita, when you were talking about activism and education, like what's your sort of what are your thoughts around that? So um, that is a great question. I think when I think about education as activism, um, it really is, I think who you were, what you were mentioning earlier about um, really questioning what we privilege, who do we honor, um, ask how and why knowledge gets constructed the way that it does. 
Um, what, who does, who does that construction validate and honor? Seeing beyond the classroom and, and really looking at um, the fundamental issues of power and that connections to teaching and learning and, and how it's all to side tied into society and all. And so mm -hmm. really um, be thinking of like, not how am I moving the needle just academically for um, my students, but how am I helping them become critical thinkers, mm -hmm. co-creators or co-constructors of, of their learning experience? How do I make sure that they see themselves in their academic experience mm -hmm. and really be thinking about um, inclusivity? Like mm -hmm. how is learning more inclusive? And so I think um, that is what education and activism is. Like you are not going there just to teach a lesson, but you are actually quite literally trying to change lives and experiences for students. Yeah, absolutely. Like she says, um, <laughs> at some point for her school stopped being about learning. It stopped being about a quest of learning. It was more about proving that she could clone her white peers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's the opposite of activism. That's the opposite of, of progress and, and forward movement and growth. It's just yeah. Really yeah. Yeah. That the other thing I really loved and I'm trying to find, I know I wrote it down, but she said that, um, cause in, in one of the discussions, it might've been in the embracing change, um, chapter, she talks about the things that influence us in the classroom. And she talks about our political views. Mm -hmm. And she said that what, what's happening. And I see this happening now in 2022 is, you know, the, the dominant voice, the dominant culture immediately is worried that whatever, you know, whatever our activist stance is, that that's going to replace that dominant. And what she says is that's not the goal. The goal is expansiveness, right. Mm -hmm. To make room for diverse voices that it's not, we, that we're not trying to, or whomever is not trying to like stamp out that dominant voice, but to make room. Um, and then she has this really great conversation. I'd love to get into a little bit um, where she talks about that. It's a, it's critical. She says, um, if I can find the quote, I'm not gonna be able to find it, but she talks about transformative learning and inclusion. And she says that you must intentionally build community. Mm -hmm. And then she talks about voice and listening and shared commitment and she said feedback, like she said, the thing about it's like, it's like, you know, here's the good news and bad news, folks, that when you do all this great work, you're going to get tons and tons of feedback. So you have to be OK with not with not getting like positive results immediately because you might get some not so positive stuff. But that's what you that's beautiful. Right. Um, and for me, the worrying part of that whole discussion, which I loved, was that she said, educators are not prepared for that work. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> she's pointed us where we need to go, right? Like she's giving us the roadmap for the work that needs to be done. So if she believes that teachers are healers, which she talks about a lot, which I also love, mm -hmm. um, and we need to do this other thing around space, you know, community, but we're not prepared to do it. Right. So to me, and I feel like, and I'm going to be quiet in a moment. I'm sorry. My voice is taking up too much space. Speaking of space 
to me, this really resonated because I don't know about you ladies, but all I'm reading about in Ed Surge and New York Times is the exhaustion of our teachers, the, the burnout, the exhaustion, they don't know what to do and they just get dumped on by parents, right? Like take that book out of the curriculum, et cetera. So I feel like it's just, again, keeps coming up, right? That our teachers need support and we as individuals need that support. But what do you ladies think? I mean, I think a lot of things. I think you brought up a lot of points that I had written down also. I mean, one thing that I think one of the things you said was that it's hard, right? It's, it's hard and it's, we're unprepared to do this. And I think that's true. And, you know, this book is not that current (laughs) and we're still, I'm feeling unprepared. So um, there's that. She says we are raised with this single norm of education experiences, right? So Mm -hmm. like in the lane, keep the guardrails, we're probably pretty good at doing that because that's what we know. Um, And that's not necessarily the best. So she says, changing that is scary. And it requires acknowledgement of that. It's scary for the faculty and it's scary for the students. Mm -hmm. The other thing she says in a different chapter, which I love, or maybe it was later in in that chapter three, is that part of the work through that is sharing the rationale. And I think there's so much power Mm -hmm. in that of saying like, we're trying something different and this is why, because I want to value everybody's voice. And this is a little uncomfortable for me because I've never done it. And you may not have been in a classroom that's like this. Let's try it. And all of a sudden you're leveling it. We're all learners. We're all doing something new and uncomfortable and we're hopefully on board with why. And I think that's part of it. I think, you know, the, the accusers of activism and all that, if you, if we could have a moment to explain the rationale, all of a sudden things become less threatening and maybe there's a little bit of learning to be had there Mm. also. So that's, I thought she did a beautiful job writing all that out, you know? Yeah. I agree. I agree. And I echo uh, one thing that also um, I think was powerful to me is that um, she she talks about community in terms of it being the students and the teachers. She's like the teachers Mm -hmm. also when we practice education or freedom, you know, it empowers teachers. Teachers get to grow um, and they're empowered by the process. And I think um, that gives. I don't want to say freedom because that's what we're talking about, but it does <laughs> give some freedom yeah. and some grace to educators mm. to know, to say, I don't have all the answers and we're in this journey together in a way that I don't think we allow our educators to have now. And that's mm-hmm. why we're so tired. Or <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's interesting because um, doing some change work in my, my context right now, I think it's, it's, external that we don't give grace. I also think there's internal, right? Because you're trained, you cultivate this identity, especially at the um, higher ed level. I'm sure this is true also with K to 12. You, you are trained as a specialist with expertise and there's no room for you to show up as a learner, right? To say, I don't know. Um, you know, that's just a scary place to be. So really creating, again, this goes back to to me, structures and policies and procedures that we need to be interrogating. I have to say um, something that I'm part of my journey is this notion of safe space versus courageous space. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know from my own learning, and I I know I've mentioned her before, I go Bethia, we had a great conversation. And I mentioned safe space and said, I know that's not the right word because I understand safety means something very different. 
I'm still grappling with what, you know, and, and she talked about courageous space. And the, I think, and I'm going to be really vulnerable that the, I want to learn and I want to be really good at cultivating a courageous space. And I don't know how to do that yet. Um, and I, and I really, I think, I think bell hooks offers a roadmap for that, but the implementation piece, like, I feel like I, I know what I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do, but like, I don't know, that's a scary space for me. But I think the reason I bring it up is because I feel like those are the spaces we need. We need to be able to hold each other accountable and we need to be able to, to be held account when we're held accountable. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I just, I don't know. What do you, do you have any, anybody have any thoughts on that? Like that, I find that work really important, but really hard for me. Yeah. You know, that is a, a so I, I definitely want to be thinking more about that, but I think it's funny. One of the things that I wrote to myself, quote unquote, uh, um, when I was um, reading the embracing change mm -hmm. and I was like, basically she tells us, don't talk about it, be about it, do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of times we know what to do. We're just scared to do it. And mm -hmm. so you have to challenge or we have to challenge ourselves to do it. Like, yeah, I want to create a courageous space, but mm, do I want to enter into that discomfort when I challenge my colleague on something that mm -hmm. they said that, you know, they probably shouldn't. Say. And sometimes we just don't want to do that. Like, mm -hmm you know, particularly down in it, like when we're in the South, like this Southern utility, we're just very polite and we <laughs> <Yes>. evade <laughs> the race question and, and all of these things mm -hmm. all the time. And um, I think that precludes us from creating that courageous space, even when we do know what to do. Like we, mm -hmm. I think we second guess ourselves, like I know what to do, um, mm -hmm. but I'm going to convince myself that I'm not because that fear um, and then, you know, you being vulnerable, like Bell Hooks tells us we have to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, we shouldn't be asking students to take risks that we won't take. Mm -hmm. um, but it's scary to take risks, especially when you're the first person. And, yeah. you know, and here we talked about like, um, no, I, we don't like to not look like we don't know what we're doing and we're not doing <laughs> yeah. this right. And, and that's a very hard place to be in when, yeah. when we are looked to to have the answers for things. Yeah. I so can I, oh, go ahead, Bran. I'll, I'll no, ask the question. I, say, I feel like stakes are so high, right? And that's why, because, you know, you want to do the right thing for people who have the wrong thing has been happening for so long. And the last thing you want to do is make that worse. But then I go back to the summer of 2020 and all this reading with Aluo's work. So you want to talk about race and she's like, you're going to make mistakes. So own it. And she's so direct with the way she writes and you're like, oh gosh. Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> So that that's in my head a lot, actually, when I'm maybe venturing toward a conversation is like, be kind, be vulnerable, trust a little bit, and then also trust the audience, like trusting the, my students that, cause I'm really talking about classroom interactions here. Um, and Parker Palmer, right. And, and Bell Hooks talk about being vulnerable. And I believe that so much. I think that's what creates an authentic classroom environment is when, mm you know, just take the armor off a little bit and yeah, show up in that space. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's, it's interesting. Cause as I'm listening to both of you, I, this is why I love these kinds of conversations. Perhaps it's a reframing cause, cause what she also talks about is she talks a lot about um, teachers need to be committed to self-actualization, 
right? Mm -hmm. And she talks about um, interrogating the mind-body split. And this reminded me of Parker Palmer, who talks about connecting the undivided life where the internal and the external are, you know, equated. And so I wonder if for me personally, and I don't mean to make this about me, but as I think about building these courageous spaces and having uncomfortable, perhaps the reframing for me is showing up authentically and vulnerable. And those are my core values. So that feels like work I can do. Mm-hmm. Right. Worry less about making this kind of space and naming the space, just show up authentically. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's kind of interesting to think about. I think you're spot on. And I think we, you'd be surprised as how many people will show up with you when you do it. Like yeah. you're just for, for one person to do it. Yeah. I think, I think you're right, Kanita. I do, I do wonder, and I, I think it's because my town and, and discussions that I've had with parents that, you know, we really disagree. It's, I feel like it's easier to do that when it's not that the, not that, you know, everybody in the space, but when you're meeting people that you don't really know, it's like a harder, right. It's harder to show up authentically. And sometimes I think of course the risk of showing up authentically is that you get squashed, (laughs) right. You get, you get hurt. And so um, yeah, making inroads, but I do think, you know, I, I love what you had said, Kanita about, you know, be the work, right. This idea of being the work. It's interesting. I feel like for me, bell hooks walks this interesting line that I love, which is be the work. And she acknowledges that teachers do need places where they can mess up without the students around, right. Cause it yeah. is high stakes, high risk. And it's not that you want to be perfect for your students, but look, we all need to practice these skills. And so I find it really interesting. And I wish that more people would pay attention to Bell Hook's work and develop supports for teachers to, to, to do that work together. Um, I don't know. I thought that I really, and she really lays out some, I feel like some clear plans for how to do that, which I thought was Well, And I think part of that, part of that section talking about teachers needing a space to practice where initially she wanted to create this really open context where the students were welcome Mm -hmm. is that the students were getting hurt because the teachers were saying things that were blatantly racist and, and terrible. And the students were leaving like, what is this? And that wasn't the intent anyway. So she had to excuse the students, I think to help the teachers to workshop also to protect the students from what was being said um, so that she could, they could move forward. I mean, I like how she says, education is freeing and liberating only when we all labor, like only when Mm. we are all learners, everyone, teacher, student, admin, leader, all of us, Mm. then it's freeing because then we're not in these little boxes that we've created that we think are awesome, right? Like I'm an expert or I'm this. Well, great. You have this area and you've got a lot to learn. We all do always. Yeah. And also, I meant, and we won't be having the same conversation 50 years from now, like we're <laughs> saying today, because we will actually be working toward change. We talk about how isomorphic education is and how we just don't move toward change. And um, and I think it's one just because, you know, we think we reward what uh, <laughs> some say we reward mediocrity, but mm-hmm. um but also just doing what we've been doing that we just kind of stick with it. But also like, if you can't um, openly say without fear of kind of repercussions or recourse um, that I don't know the answer, then 
you're not going to get good new answers to anything. Like when we, um, I remember when, um, so I used to run a fellowship for my organization for school district leaders. And so we shifted our work during the onset of the pandemic. um, And we're like, okay, we won't do any of this kind of curriculum stuff that we do, but we'll bring you together just as a, a community of practice, learning community of district leaders. And um, one of the superintendents who actually had been the longest standing superintendent. Um, so I think she had about 16 years in her district. And she said, this is the first place I've been able to come to say, I don't know what to do. I've never mm-hmm. lived in a pandemic and I don't have the answers. And she's like, everybody's expecting me to have the answer. And she left from this community with so many great ideas from other leaders that she wouldn't have gotten if she hadn't been able to say, I, I don't know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm, I'm scared and I don't know what to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we just, I think what you both have been saying is that we just don't give the space to do that. And it's really to our detriment in a lot of ways. It is. I mean, it could make our lives so much less stressful if we would just <laughs> embrace that, right? It would be so much, life would be so much easier if it was okay just to say, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Also think about who it empowers when you say, I don't know. Like if a student asks me a question and I say, I don't know, which I say regularly and somebody else has an answer. I'm like, oh, Danielle, that was great. Mm -hmm. Did you hear what she said? Like if I BS some answer or tried to fake my way out of it, I wouldn't have given this student the opportunity to actually show that she has this awesome knowledge that we didn't know about. So I think there's, there's, a, a freedom for us to, to let the guard down and say, I don't know everything because no one knows everything. And then there's also opportunity in that for somebody else to step up and, and to lead. And that's where we really are all learners in those spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just pausing because I'm taking all this in. So it's okay. <laughs> it's okay to have some, some silence here. Right. The thing, yeah. the reason I was pausing is because, um, I was preparing for a different presentation and I wanted to use some of um, Dr. Kendi's work. And I was reading um, an interview with him. I think it was Harvard Magazine. And again, I'm going to be vulnerable. I, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, the the whole ideas of anti-racist pedagogy in theory, it's taken me a while to understand sort of, you know, what that really meant. And I heard him describe it to this interviewer and he said, that for him, anti, and I'm paraphrasing because he was way more eloquent than I'll be, but I'm, he said that for him, anti-racism is this idea that me as an individual, he's speaking about himself, values the talents, abilities, and diversity of everyone in the room. And, and he said, you can't stop there. So right now, I've, and I'm bringing this up for, and I promise I'll make a connection. And he said, and you have to use the privilege you have, whatever that is, to ensure that that value permeates your culture. Mm-hmm. And the reason I bring that up is because what I don't want to ever lose sight of, and what I've heard many um, experts in sort of the DEI world talk about is, it's wonderful to do the inside work. We have to do the inside work. Bell Hooks reminds us over and over again that it starts with that inside work. But if we're not, and this goes back, I feel like, um, Kanita, to your original, the why and activism, if we're not pushing that outward, we're not doing enough. Right. And so for me, as I've reread this book, thanks to you guys agreeing to do this, I'm 
trying to make a commitment to find ways to push that out, to have the courage to not just do because because honestly, like at the end of the day, and this is I mean, I know I'm privileged to say I have time to do this, but like reading a book at this point, that's sort of easy work. Mm-hmm. Right. For me, like now, granted, I know not everybody has the time to do that. And I appreciate that I have that that opportunity. So I need to push myself and commit um, to pushing that out and and challenging the structures, the policies, the people I see to do better um, so that we can be better for everybody. But I don't know. I love when I saw that with Dr. Kendi, I was like, oh, that is he's so eloquent anyway. (laughs) So to see that was really, really powerful. That's a very important point, uh, Carrie, that I, I, you know, that what don't want us to lose and that we are um, doing it with the right people and not, that you're not just preaching it to the mm. choir, like you actually need mm-hmm. to be doing it to the people or with the people that need to hear it. I, yeah. you know, I remember, actually, it was funny, I was on a, a study group. Um, and at the onset of you know, the pandemic, but also this racial reckoning (laughs) that the country was going to. And, you know, I'm being one of the only um, Black students on the call, not Mm -hmm. one of the only. And so um, I appreciated us wanting, like, one student, some of my classmates wanting to really ask me what I was feeling about what was going Mm -hmm. on, kind of, um, you know, saying, hey, I'm here with you. I'm an ally and all this stuff and really emotional. And I was like, well, that's great that you feel that way and that you're telling me that. But like when your uncle is making kind of racist comments, that's who you actually need to be talking to. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that, um, because they offer, they're like, in my family, this is, a, and I was like, okay, well then say that to them. Um, and so making sure that we are not just doing it outwardly or external, but we're doing it um, with intentionality mm. and with, um, the right people to do it with. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, I think there was a, again, I think it was embracing change. Um, and it might've been when she was at Oberlin and, um, Brianne, you mentioned the taking it out of the students and with the, with the faculty and what bell hooks points out to the reader is that some of the most powerful conversations in that group were when some of the most conservative faculty members had a shift, mm-hmm. right? And so it gets to your point, Kanita, about you can't just be sort of preaching to the choir or in the sort of safety of friends that you know, that you have to, you really have to be willing to take a risk, really, that you really have to be committed to that authenticity and sharing that beyond your sort of circle, I guess. Um, yeah. And that vulnerability is, that's like the real deal, right? it is. That's being the work is what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. It is. It's being the work. It's being the work. So, so I want to be, um, really respectful of everybody's time. And I know as a listener myself, I don't want to go too long for our audience. Um, but we could, we could probably go on for hours and hours. I would love, and a pause is okay. Um, I would love to hear from each of you sort of, I don't know. I'm going to give you, you can, you can choose how about a choose your own adventure. I'd, I'd either, or both, I'd love to either hear sort of your just sort of like your big takeaway from reviewing this work again or in the conversation um, and or something that you have either committed to or recommitted to as a result of your reading of Bell Hooks. So um, I feel like I should play the Jeopardy theme song or something for a moment. (laughs) Um, So a takeaway or and or 
something um, that you've committed to? Mm. Brian, do you want to go? Ooh, gosh, thrown in. Okay. Um, <laughs> that was nice. I'm terrible about that. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I get, there's a lot. I think that the word that comes to mind and it's a light word, but she takes it heavily is community. And it's something that Carrie and I've written about. It's something that I talk about a lot and I try to establish in my classes. That's lovely, right? So like, what does that really mean? I think what Bell Hooks challenges me to do is to think critically about what that word means. And again, I go back to her introduction of her experience of um, her primary education, you know, when she was in the segregated schools and being seen. And that is my goal as a facilitator of some of these communities in my work is to make really explicit efforts to have every student seen. And I've had the privilege of meeting with some students of color this semester who have come and asked for meetings and it's been awesome. And I, I don't know if it's because of these sort of intentional efforts or if it's just by chance, but we've had really awesome conversations. And I feel like I've been able to channel what Bell Hooks does by asking, like, tell me about school, tell me about this, tell me about that. And it's allowed me to, to use those examples in class and be like, Kanita did this and Carrie did that, just as I did with every other student, right? But I've had this opportunity and this sort of calling to really connect with everybody and like be intentional and to realize that what I did before isn't gonna work for everybody. And so um, just trying to meet you know, each student where they are, these are sort of cliches, but I, I, I think there's so much need for it. And it's hard for me to do it because I was raised in a white way and I went to all white schools and I teach mostly white students with almost all white colleagues. So it worked, I guess, right? If you put worked in quotes and now there's a different way and I appreciate this and my work and my challenge every day is to just keep strengthening that community in the ways that she teaches. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Brianne. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I've said a few things that I think are kind of nuggets, or as you said, Carrie, mm -hmm. the playlist that you take yeah. away. Um, I think it is the, you know, education as activism is, is key for me. Mm -hmm. I think um, one thing that I will definitely hold on to and challenge myself to remember is that acts of resistance is not the same as challenging mm. the status quo. I don't know. I don't know why that was so powerful to me, but I just, I just loved it. Yeah. Um, and so, but I think, you know, going back to kind of my why, my purpose and really changing education practice so that it works for all students. Mm -hmm. um, I really just so appreciated um, what Bell Hooks talked about as the purpose of and, and what she got in her education. It really was, I think she called it this um, um, messianic zeal for to transform mm -hmm. minds and beings. And, and we have gone to where it's just about information. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be that way. So what, what am I doing to continue to push us back to having that zeal to transform minds and beings? And so mm -hmm. I think that is kind of the challenge that I'm taking um, with, with me from this. Yeah. 
Ooh, so good. So good. I don't, I don't know that I can say anything that's gonna, you know, elevate the conversation more than you both have. I will share, um, as I reread her, her work and prepared, you know, what I kept coming back to is something that might probably my favorite word. Um, and I will say before I say the word that I, once again, I feel like when the universe is, is sending me messages and speaking to me, I just need to pay attention. I think Brian knows what word I'm going to say probably. Um, and bell hooks reminded me once again, that for me, a commitment to integration is, is it for me like that to me is it it's it's showing up with your your cognitive you know pieces and your heart and your emotion pieces all in one messy you know bag whatever the the metaphor is and I love her speaking of interrogating the mind body split so when when you're feeling that split ask yourself another question what's going what am I feeling why do I feel this way what is this about you know, to, to really interrogate that and working towards that wholeheartedness and that authenticity and being undivided. And so I can, I can only speak as a, you know, I identify as a white um, gay woman. And my experience has taught me that I spent a lot of my younger years, not having permission to integrate my whole self Mm -hmm. and what I have committed to, and I'm going to try not to cry, but what I have committed to at the K to 12 level in my town and in my work as a professor is I will never stand for a student feeling like they cannot integrate their whole self into any space that I find myself. And if I can do anything to help that, I will, I will, I need to speak up no matter what the risk to me, because no kid, adult, or anyone should ever feel that way. And so for me, the takeaway is integration. It's a reminder of why this is important in her beautiful words. And the commitment is to, to reach beyond, as Kanita reminded us, reach beyond my comfort level, beyond the Hopkins, the town, and touch and talk to somebody else to start making some difference in waves someplace else. So, um, so I want to say that I am just deeply grateful to the two of you for engaging in this conversation. I have been looking forward to it and you did not disappoint. It was amazing for all sorts of reasons. So um, thank you so much for your time and for your thoughts. This was, uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, uh, especially for giving us a platform for this important, critical conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Well, that was a deep one. Um, (laughs) It's been another episode of Tell Me This. I am your host, Carrie Borkowski, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Take care, everybody.